to the uh, Dudemaker Hotline here. We'll say hello to our friend Joe Doyle, who is with the Catholic Action League of uh, Massachusetts. Remember, I um, uh, had broken the news to you uh, last Friday, or broken the good news to you, that this ordinance that was um, up in East Hampton, Massachusetts, which basically would have put a pregnancy, a pro-life pregnancy women's center, uh, I don't want to say put them out of business, would have probably caused them to shut down. Looked like it was going to sail to an easy victory, and then something strange and beautiful and wonderful happened on the way to, uh, to, to taking the victory lap for Satan, and that is the ordinance ultimately got vetoed by the mayor, and then the council couldn't override the veto here to tell us all the details about that. And what's going on and with the pro-life action in Massachusetts with the Catholic Action League is Joe Doyle. Joe, welcome to the Mike Church Show again, old friend. How are you? I'm very well, Mike. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm always delighted to be with you and with your listeners. I'm always delighted to have you as well. Um, this story goes back almost a year, doesn't it? From when they first started talking about this, and Elizabeth Warren uh, started uh, agitating for legislatures in the state of Massachusetts to get busy to try to put pro-life pregnancy centers uh, out of existence, right? It goes back a year. It actually goes, goes back to about 2015. What happened in 2015 was that the National Abortion Rights Action League, NARAL, NARAL Pro-Choice America, decided to uh, target and demonize and try to suppress and restrict and, and burden and, uh, and threaten with lawfare and burden with regulations uh, their competition, which is, of course, pro-life uh, pregnancy care centers, also known as crisis pregnancy centers. And they put out this document claiming there was widespread deception and fraud, and they, they lied to women. And you know what lies they were telling to women, according to uh, NARAL, is people at crisis pregnancy centers were telling pregnant women that they were already mothers. And they were telling them the other lie, of course, which is that the, uh, uh, the fetus was actually an unborn child who had the right to life. So this is clearly a, you know, a, a, an ideologically driven, politically driven, and most of all, financially driven, because uh, Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry uh, suffers financially whenever people uh, choose n not to uh, to have an abortion. So this was an attempt to basically by the abortion industry to suppress uh, th their own competition and to use government uh, to do so. Now what happened is after the Dobbs decision, this whole campaign was ramped up. And despite the widespread vandalism that uh, occurred against both Catholic churches and crisis pregnancy centers, they continued this, uh, this disinformation campaign to again try to demonize and restrict uh, crisis pregnancy centers. And uh, you remember Elizabeth Warren actually said that, uh, you know, uh, uh, pro-lifers mean women harm. And uh, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey, who was then attorney general, put out both a press statement and a, uh, and a, and a consumer advisory warning <laughs> saying that uh, 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 pro-life crisis pregnancy centers were trying to prevent people from having access uh, to abortion and contraception. So if you offer them a compassionate alternative to ab abortion, if you offer them a different choice, you're, uh, you're, you're preventing access. So the, one, the only good thing that's come out of this is we can finally lay to rest uh, that, uh, that uh, fraudulent mantra about a woman's choice. Because obviously, as far as the abortion industry and, uh, is concerned, there's only one choice. Right. And if somebody offers another, another choice, the government and the law should be used to, to suppress them. 
So, of course, again, the whole hypocrisy of choice now has been exposed. Anyways, what happened is back in East Hampton, which is, this is a small city in the western part of Massachusetts in Hampshire County, uh, they... Uh, Going back last year, they, they initially proposed an ordinance uh, to which would basically have, have shut down any crisis pregnancy center. Now, there is a, a wonderful crisis pregnancy center in East Hampton. It's, it's called Bethlehem House, mm-hmm. and it's affiliated with the, the, the Catholic Diocese of Springfield. And it was vandalized at the time by uh, this, these, these abortion fanatics called Jane's Revenge. And, of course, no one has been apprehended. No one has been arrested. No one has been prosecuted. No one has been punished. But the city council wants to punish the crisis pregnancy center. So let's punish the victims. Uh, so, again, this shows you how really extreme, how totalitarian, how, uh, how utterly hostile to, uh, to constitutional rights the, the new woke majority or the new uh, woke movement in, uh, in, in American politics is. So the, the ordinance was, was watered down a few times. It was changed. So what happened was back in July, on the 5th of July, uh, an anti-crisis pregnancy center ordinance was passed by the East Hampton City Council. And it was, it was apparently passed with what seemed to be a veto-proof majority. It was six to one. There's an eight-man city council. It was six to one with one abstention. Now, the mayor, who is uh, a very um, strident supporter of legal abortion and talks about reproductive rights, and this is essential to a woman's autonomy, the mayor vetoed it, not obviously out of any concern for the right to life of the unborn child, not out of any sympathy for crisis pregnancy centers, but for the very practical reason that it would expose the city to all sorts of liabilities that would come from litigation. And it could be proved to be very, very costly to the city. So for just reasons of fiscal prudence, and uh, and concern again over um, over uh, uh, the cost of litigation. The mayor, a woman named Nicole Lachapelle, vetoed it. Now it was expected the veto would be overridden, and there was much talk in the um, in the Western Massachusetts press and the media there about it expected uh, expected being uh, to be uh, overridden. And what what happened was uh, on uh, on August the second, two of the councilors, including the council president, a man named uh, Yomar Gomez, changed their position. So the final vote for the override was five to three. Now, that was a majority, but it was one vote short of the two-thirds majority, which is necessary to override a mayoral veto. So what happened is the veto override failed, and the, uh, the veto of the ordinance stands, and there will be no ordinance targeting uh, 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 pro-life crisis pregnancy centers in East Campus. That, that's a victory here in deep blue Massachusetts. That's a real victory for the pro-life movement. And it comes just about, you know, just about a few weeks after a similar victory in Worcester, which is the New England, Massachusetts' second largest city, New England's second largest city, where again the council, a woke majority on the council, voted for an ordinance that would basically shut down the crisis pregnancy centers in that city. But the mayor and the city solicitor, the city manager rather, and the city solicitor uh, had grave reservations about it because of the cost of litigation. So um, um, this is now what, what, the, what, what would have happened in East Hampton. Uh, if this thing had passed, as it, uh, it uh, the measure had actually it embraced the language of the abortion industry in deriding and stigmatizing pro-life uh, crisis pregnancy centers as "quote unquote" limited service pregnancy centers. They ought to be called non-lethal pregnancy centers because they're the only pregnancy centers where no, where no one dies. You know? right, right. So, uh, uh, yeah, they they also promoted the lie that this uh, and the whole premise of this that they're engaged in widespread deceptive advertising, which uh, which takes advantage of. Of pregnant women, and it would have facilitated the legal and the bureaucratic harassment of centers by encouraging East Hampton residents to file consumer complaints against them. So, see, this is what the abortion industry is doing, where they can't actually
actually close down a, a crisis pregnancy center. They can burden it with regulations, have it respond to complaints, engage in lawfare against it, and 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 and, and escalate the cost of running it. Now, these crisis pregnancy centers, unlike Planned Parenthood, don't receive hundreds of millions of dollars in hundreds of millions of dollars in your tax dollars. There's there's no government subsidies. It, it, in many cases, they're kind of shoestring operations by volunteers. So they, they know what they're doing, the other side. They're going to target them. They're going to force them to litigate. They're going to force them to respond to, uh, to government regulation. And this is going to, uh, uh, you know, oppress them, repress them, and, uh, <coughs> pardon me, cause such a, 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 a litigatory and bureaucratic burden that it will that will that will it will impede their uh, their operations. Right. Anyways, this is the one that failed, uh, and uh, this is really uh, you know it really tells you this this whole movement again to target and demonize and restrict and repress crisis pregnancy centers using these uh, completely contrived and unfounded claims of deception again has its origins in the abortion industry, which has a compelling financial interest in suppressing its, its opposition and closing down its competition. And, you know, many of the lies here, uh, uh, Mike, that are being peddled as part of this disinformation campaign are just extravagant in their recklessness and their cynicism and, and their malevolence. Again, we mentioned Elizabeth Warren claiming that pro-life citizens mean women harm, or others, including Governor Maura Healey, saying that they're, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're obstructing women, impeding women, impairing women, preventing them from having access to abortion. And I think this really has to raise a question. And the question is, what does it say about the, the, the supporters of, of, of abortion, particularly the elected officials, that they're so ready to believe that pro-life Christians are liars and frauds and charlatans who deceive women and prey upon women? And, and to me, what it tells us is the secular left is, is populated with intolerant bigots who have deep-seated animus against religious believers, particularly Catholics. It also tells us that not all fundamentalism is religious. Uh, you know, uh, That's right. The, the, political left, the political left also has its fundamentalists who are willing to believe any lie uh, told about their adversaries. i just make one last point, if I could. Sure. Which is what, yeah, since fiscal prudence... And Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We lost him. Looks like we lost Joe. Uh, we'll call him right back, and we'll get him. We'll get him right back on Mike Churchill here on the Crusade Channel. If you're wondering uh, live talk radio the way it should be, if you're wondering uh, if Joe takes breaths or not, uh, he's gotten very good at this uh, uh, method of public speaking, if you will, um, uh, through years of litigating and uh, having to debate libs in courts and in other places, where he has found that the easiest way to shut them down is just don't give them a chance to talk. <laughs> just keep talking and don't give them a chance don't give them an entry point until your point is made i would also say this and i would just add this to what joe was saying about the motivation of uh, of, of people like elizabeth warren uh there is some demonic influence that is here as well um it's it it, it, it you can explain some of it away obviously as uh fundamentalism and a fundamentalism uh, towards evil you can also explain uh, that evil as remember what it, what is <laughs> we forget from time to time until we talk to exorcists and really good priests the demons in Satan have a gig they have a job their job is the ruination of souls and they're really good at it 
Um, uh, and in large part, you can't always say the devil made him do it, but at some level, yes, there is probably a demon that is, as I like to say, uh, someone like Elizabeth Warren has a bogey on her. She doesn't have a bogey. She has an army of bogeys on her. Um, and, and this is readily apparent from her absolute, just wicked disdain for the truth and for all things life. Um, and I say something else. Joe is back. Something else that uh, we can talk about with Joe, uh, with Joe Doyle as well. Um, you also see where there is emotion, there is irrationality. I mean, there are men in Massachusetts that are in politics that say ridiculous things about abortion and contraception and stuff. That's I'm not saying that there aren't. But the hysteria and the irrationality that Joe was talking about, and they're just they're they're, they're bigoted fundamentalism against especially Catholics against Christians. Um, these are things that women do. These are primarily, and then you have all these women in power. You know, no one can say that women have not had an opportunity to make their stand or to, to make their uh, to set their example uh, especially if you're looking at the Bay, uh, at, at the Bay State Massachusetts governor female the, the mayor of Boston Michelle Wee woman uh, Joe can tell us more women are running the show in Massachusetts politics these days and the only men that need apply are the ones that you don't want or effeminate uh, fake Catholics like Marty Walsh, who is now running the union, the players' union for the National Hockey League. Uh, Joe, uh, I believe we have you back. Great. Uh, hi, Mike. I don't know if you hear, this is heard my last point, which is that the the, um, the only thing that's really constraining people uh, and uh, municipal officials from going forward with these anti-crisis pregnancy center uh, ordinances is that they fear the, the Trump-appointed majority on the Supreme Court. They, they know that ultimately, if this if this uh, freedom of speech and freedom of religion cases go to the Supreme Court, uh, they'll lose. So again, it's, it, it's not, uh, there's nothing altruistic here about these, these uh, public officials. They're, they're just concerned about the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the fiscal burden that will be, uh, you know, uh, imposed on cities and towns to do this. And bear in mind uh, that the, the primary revenue stream for a municipality uh, is, um, is the property tax. So if, if, if there is an expensive court case, that the uh, that a city or town loses, uh, the uh, you know the, the possibility is in order to pay for that, you might have to go up on on homeowners' property taxes and on the property taxes of small businesses, which would be political poison uh, for the for the leadership of the city. So in, in a way, they're uh, they're they're engaged in their own uh, uh, you know self preservation here by uh, opposing things that their ideological and political allies support against crisis pregnancy centers because they, uh, it, it could cost a fortune and they'll be blamed for it and they'll, and they'll suffer its fault. That is a very good point there, and they will lose. Uh, there's a very good possibility that they would lose if it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And Planned Parenthood doesn't want that to happen because they don't, they, uh, they don't want a blanket judgment against their, against their business model. Yeah, I mentioned one other thing, uh, uh, Mike. Just what you were talking about. I think, and I say this, you know, with, with, uh, I say this charitably, and I don't say this, uh, you know, in a polemical sense. But you have to wonder when you get one of these really, really irrational, hysterical reactions from a, a, a public official who's female. You have to really ask yourself again in charity. You have to ask yourself: Is this woman post border herself, and is that why um, you, you're getting it? It becomes so. It becomes such a deep-seated emotion that, uh, you know, the flickering embers of her conscience are still uh, 
I'm still afflicting her here, you know? Well, there is, <clears throat> previously, the Catholic Action League, you know, you had been covering this other case here, uh, Bay State Promotes Gender Confusion, and yeah. uh, the, there was an act relative to gender identity and Massachusetts identification, and as you say, the law, if enacted, would have uh, four effects. None of them are good. Um, uh, uh, some of what uh, you, you hear in Elizabeth Warren and some of these other women, this is what I call projection. They project Project what they are thinking and that what they do and what they wish to do onto their enemies, which just happen to be right. Catholics and Christians. So uh, let's back up a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the the, the gender identity bill. Did it pass? Uh, well, there, 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 there are a few of, uh, of these coming up, but one is is a uh, um, it's called uh, uh, Senate Bill twenty four twenty nine, which is an act relative to gender identity in on Massachusetts identification. And if it's passed, it has several effects. It will allow, now, since, believe it or not, since 2019, the Registry of Motor Vehicles in Massachusetts, which issues all these um, uh, documents which pertain to uh, somebody's identification, has, has allowed uh, a third gender designation. In addition to M and F, male and female, it allows a, uh, a gender designation as X, which could be a, 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 have various meanings. It could be something they call non-binary. It could be something that could be intersexual. They call all, all these. They, they've invented all this language to, to facilitate this uh, this this lunacy. Uh, and so they've already they already they have already allowed it. And this was under a Republican governor, Charlie Baker. But what will happen now is this was that was an executive decision by an executive branch official, a bureaucrat which was revocable. It, it was not permanent. What's happened now is this would be a, a, a piece of legislation that would become, that if passed in, uh, by both houses and signed by the governor, would become part of the, uh, the Massachusetts general law. So it's, it's converting basically an executive order into a statute. And uh, uh, among the documents that you can have gender X would not only be driver's licenses, but learner's permits, state ID cards, uh, identification cards, so-called mass IDs, and liquor, liquor purchase identification cards. And uh, they'd be permitted to, to uh, choose whatever their gender designation they want, regardless of their biological sex, and that would include uh, 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 so-called gender X. Now, there's another, there's, there's about three other parts of this. The other part of it is uh, any person over the age of 18, or in the case of a minor, their parent or guardian, would be permitted retroactively to alter their birth certificate uh, to designate their sex as, as, as gender X or some other yet unspecified designation. And then um, a person would also be permitted retroactively. Uh, now, th th really, this is a, the part of the insanity of this. They'd be permitted retroactively to amend their marriage certificate, altering both their name and their gender designation, which again could include gender X or some other potential uh, gender designation yet to be discovered. So uh, but the, I think the worst, the final fourth part is really the worst part. And that's at all state agencies which uh, administer programs to youth, including well, the Department of Youth Services, the Department of Families and Children, uh, the Department of Mental Health, will be required to disseminate to the, to the minors in their care information on changing their sex and gender designation. And they'd have to also establish protocols on how to, quote unquote, assist them in this process. Uh, so th this was actually passed to be engrossed by the Massachusetts Senate on the 27th of July. The vote was unanimous. It was thir 39 to 0. There's 40 members of the Massachusetts Senate. There's one vacancy. It was 39 to 0 with all 36 Democrats and all three Republicans uh, voting in the affirmative. That's and now, nuts. It goes to, now it goes to the, uh, the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Now, what this bill will require is that the, the Commonwealth of Mass, uh, Massachusetts 
will be uh, required to affirm and give legal sanction to this ideologically driven delusion that gender is a subjective social con- construct, which can be altered arbitrarily and capriciously uh, rather than what it actually is, which is an objective and immutable biological reality. It will make government a party to this delusion. It will confuse and falsify uh, public records. It'll compel government employees, in, in, in some cases against their consciences, to participate in this falsification. It will result in discrimination, really, in public employment against anyone who holds a traditional understanding of, of reality. That is to say, anyone who is lucid and sane. And, of course, it will make the investigation of criminal offenders more difficult uh, by, uh, by law enforcement. But, again, I think the worst part of it is this Section 4 will essentially empower government bureaucrats uh, to proselytize minors in their care for so-called gender transitioning. That's it's grooming. Insane. It's, it's, it's grooming. It's insane. It's malign. It's, it's non-rational, and it ought to be rejected. And I fear the uh, Massachusetts House will, will pass it overwhelmingly. Unbelievable. This is a, a C. Joseph Doyle is the president of the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts, the last sane and live voice standing in the in the Great Bay State. Joe's a regular guest of ours. He's a regular speaker every year. You just celebrated year number 50 speaking at the St. Benedict Center. Um, I did. <laughs> a regular. Yeah. We've been going there a lot um, <clears throat> since the early 1970s, the, the late uh, State Representative Jim Craven, who I worked for, uh, a fellow named Bob Flanagan, who was the legislative director of the Massachusetts Department of Corrections, and Joe McIsaac, who was uh, Brother Hughes. I remember people from the Philly of the St. Benedict Center remember, will we'll remember this, Superior Brother Hugh McIsaac, his brother Joe McIsaac, and the, the three of them brought me up there way back in 1972. Let me just say one thing in justice, if, if I can, Mike. Sure. Uh, it's, kind, it's kind of you to call me the only sane voice, but we have a, a couple of sane voices. We should remember Bill Carter of Operation Rescue Boston. And we should remember Brian Kamerker, who runs uh, uh, Mass, Mass Resistance and the Parents' Rights Council, uh, that also uh, are willing to uh, kind of stand against the, uh, the oncoming lunacy and this, uh, this, this totalitarian wokeness that, that, that's afflicting our state. So I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely alone, but, uh, but, we, but we, we get no help from either the mainstream, uh, uh, from either the Catholic Church or the mainstream conservative incorporated. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear uh, Joe Potter. And who was the other gentleman? Uh, Bill Potter, Bill Potter of Operation Rescue, uh, who 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 has this lonely vigil, you know, in front of the abortuaries where the children are being killed, and if it's, it's ten degrees below zero uh, and it's snowing, he's there at seven o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, on in, on winter morning. So he, he's really a guy that's a pro-life hero. And Brian Kamerka, who's an Orthodox Jew, by the way, uh, who is uh, who runs uh, Mass Resistance and is uh, uh, one of the people. Who's getting all national attention because uh, branches of his organization are, are are trying to get all this kiddie porn out of public libraries, and they're getting a lot of uh, uh, controversy, but they're also in pushback from the government bureaucrats, but they're also having a lot of success too. Well, it, it, it it's an irony uh, in the state of Michigan, and uh, gosh, I want to say it's in Montana and a couple other places. The opposition to the American Library Association and this wretched woman who's running it, and uh, their attempt to uh, to put all this uh, this this uh, grooming child pornography uh, under the guise of uh, that it's educational reading for children. Uh, the most pushback they're getting uh, now they are getting it from from homeschoolers and from Christians who uh, have their kids, children still stuck in the government-run uh, school system, but they're also getting it from both barrels from a sect of people that are just not afraid of these people, and that's Muslims. 
The Muslims are just, they are not, they have no fear of bureaucrats and of female liberals who, I guess that's part of the Muslim kind of culture there. They're just not afraid of them. And they go to the, uh, they go to the meetings and I think, uh, I'm actually kind of thankful that the Muslims are there because the Muslims are are some of the loudest voices and they won't take no for an answer. Um, We we just saw a Muslim majority on the city council in the town of Michigan. Uh, you know, come out against uh, flying the the, uh, uh, the rainbow flag, which which could also be described as the as the uh, sodomy affirmation banner. You That's know? it. And uh, uh, so I, I think um, uh, uh, people on the political left are, are, are going to have a surprise uh, when they see that uh, you know um, uh, America's Muslim minority comes into uh, actually comes into uh, some some political power. What the result likely result in it? Now, now, Joe, um, I want to switch gears for just a moment, if I can, and I want to uh, just kind of ad lib and talk American Massachusetts and Democrat Party history with you, if you have a moment. Sure. sure. Okay. Um, I should have called you on the 21st of July and had you on as my guest to talk about uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon. Um, uh, and in the course of, you know, I grew up as a, uh, I, I, I often tell the audience I am a NASA nerd. I was a little boy. I was seven years old when it happened. My, I went to take a nap because uh, my grandmother told me, go take a nap, sweetie. I'll wake you up when, the, when it's going to happen. And uh, I did. And there I was, a seven-year-old kid. I was plopped on the rug in front of that old RCA console box television, and I watched the whole thing. Here's what I'm finding out as an adult on my website, uh, crusademax.com, Spotify for people that don't want to go to hell. As I go through some of the speeches that John John F. Kennedy gave, and kind of at the the dawn, if you will, of of the space age and of the Apollo program, it just, it, 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 it dawns on me, and I know there are people that say that Nixon beat Kennedy in, uh, in 1960, but the votes in Chicago were, were altered, and Kennedy wins Illinois, and he wins the presidency. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not I would have been a Kennedy guy as a Southern Democrat, or I'd have been a Nixon guy. But I can tell you this, is going back and watching uh, JFK's speech, and I especially am, I, I, I love it, I, I've probably listened to it 10 times now. The speech that he gave in the, in the, uh, the August heat, outdoors in Rice Stadium, and outside of Houston, Texas, in August of nineteen, uh, in August of nineteen sixty-three, um, uh, it, when he talks about how the men are going to, we're, we're going to, here's how we're going to get to the moon and back, and he basically describes, he, he describes a Saturn V rocket. And he talks about how it's going to be built at Cape Canaveral, and of course they're building the Johnson Space Flight Center at that time. So we know the politics involved. But he talks about how the Saturn V is going to be two football fields. The place they're going to build is going to be two football fields long. The Saturn V will be 41 stories tall. And he just talks about this. And, um, you know, you watch that. And then you watch the speech that he gave in 1962. Uh, I think it's May the 25th, 1962. It's basically the State of the Union in front of a, a special session of Congress. You can see that there are Republicans in that audience that are sitting on their hands and just going like, no, this isn't going to happen. But the thing I take away way from uh, from JFK's speeches and I really just uh, uh, I feel historically kind of ignorant uh, as a re- as a result of this one and I'm glad that I undertook the project um, 
Kennedy was, now I think that Reagan had a little bit of dreamer in him too, but Kennedy, you know, for all of his faults and for the things that he got wrong in his personal life and all that, he really was, I think, the last American president uh, or, 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 or even candidate for the presidency that actually believed that there was something good good, noble, and Christian about the United States of America and what we could possibly accomplish together. I don't know what your view of Kennedy is, but mine has softened as a result of researching the uh, my, my research on the Apollo project. So, uh, I, and I wanted to talk to you about it, because I'm like, if anybody knows, it's Joe. Well, well, first of all, I mean, John F. Kennedy could not be nominated by the Democratic Party today because he would be considered a, a right-wing extremist and a, and a MAGA Republican, because his views he does not support, obviously, same-sex marriage or any of the other, you know, moral atrocities uh, that we uh, that, that we see today. Uh, almost every Irish Catholic Democrat I knew that was around in 1960 told me they voted for Richard Nixon. And the reason they voted for Richard Nixon was because the, the Kennedy family were opposed uh, to U.S. House Speaker John McCormick uh, and they were opposed to uh, former Boston mayor and Massachusetts governor, James Michael Curley. And, of course, Curley and McCormick were the two great heroes, Curley especially, of uh, Irish Catholics and, and all Catholics and others in Boston. And the Kennedy family is, is viewed as adversaries who had tried to you know, destroy their political careers, um, uh, were, were consequently viewed as, as enemies. Uh, both of my parents voted for, for Nixon, and they were both you know, lifelong Democrats. Uh, I worked for a uh, former state representative, uh, Representative Jim Craven, who was the chairman of the Democratic Party in Boston. Okay. He was the chairman of the Democratic City Committee, and uh, he and uh, Michael Paltini were at one point uh, the, uh, the Democratic co-chairman of Suffolk County, and he voted for Nixon, and his whole family voted for Nixon. <laughs> now, it was, uh, again, it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Kennedys were enormously popular among Catholics in America and enormously popular among Catholics in Massachusetts. They were extremely unpopular among Catholics in Boston. And we saw that in 1974, at the depth of the controversy over forced busing, um, you know, somebody beat Ted Kennedy uh, for re-election in the Democratic primary in Boston. And the, and the person that beat Ted Kennedy were the blank ballots. More blank ballots were cast uh, for, for the U.S. Senate primary than were cast for Senator incumbent Senator Edward Kennedy. So the Kennedys were never particularly uh, 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 popular here in Boston. I, I think Kennedy, certainly John F. Kennedy, was... Uh, uh, again, uh, uh, you know, uh, a rational actor politically, and uh, and certainly I think he was a patriot. And, I, and, he, and we had this great disadvantage, perceived disadvantage in the space race that the, the Russians got Sputnik into uh, the first satellite, artificial satellite, into orbit before us. So there was a certain sense of urgency here. But of course, you know how it's been explained many times of the uh, uh, American success over the Russians in the space race. And it was it was one simple fact. You know what that fact was, Mike? What's, what, what, no, what, what, what's that? Uh, our Germans were better than their Germans. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> we had better crowds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had Werner. We had Werner von Braun. We did. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, we were able, you know, I mean, Saturn V, you talked about what, you know, a marvel of German engineering. <laughs> so, <laughs> we had uh, <laughs> We beat them. You know, Werner wanted to go to Mars. He didn't want to go to the moon. He wanted to go all the way to Mars. So it was, uh, uh, we, we had the, uh, this was the result of the United States deciding in 1945 that we weren't going to try people as war criminals who were part of the V-2 and the V-1 program, but instead we were going to take them and use them. And uh, we brought them, I think, to Alabama or some uh, 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 
facility there, and then they, they all stayed, and they all ended up, uh, uh, you know, again, beating the, the Russians to the moon. So, I mean, Kennedy deserves enormous credit uh, for, for uh, uh, initiating the, the moon program, and, uh, and he, he succeeded. And, of course, it was, it was Nixon as president in 1969 when, um, when, uh, we finally, when we finally landed on the board. Right. I'm old enough to remember, Mike, I'm old enough to remember the horrible tragedy. It was pretty much on live TV when Gus Grissom and I think three others were incinerated Apollo uh, one. In, their, in, in their castle, you know. And it was just a terrible thing. And uh, but it was uh, it was something when you, if you're a certain age, a certain generation, it dominated. You know, there were only three television networks in those days, and it dominated coverage. Everything that I mean, if a capsule fell into the ocean and it was recovered by a U.S. aircraft carrier or a helicopter, that was that was live on TV. The uh, the uh, the takeoff at Cape Canaveral, Cape Canaveral was live on TV. Right. It was uh, it completely dominated. But it was it was a marvelous example of American technology and engineering, and you really wonder whether that still exists today. No. I'll tell you this is one quick thing. It was uh, uh, the USS Enterprise, which is the first uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, was just retired a couple of years ago, and they're building a replacement. And they had a, a, a symposium on television on this regarding the construction of the new Enterprise. And they mentioned that the, the 1960 Enterprise was built entirely with, uh, with uh, technology and, and parts and labor from the United States. And now... Uh, the the uh, the new USS Enterprise, the replacement that's going to be built uh, in the um, in the uh, third decade of the twentieth twenty first century, is uh, importing parts and uh, and and skills from all over the world, including, believe it or not, China. China. So uh, imagine you know importing technology from China to use in America's newest attack nuclear aircraft carrier. That's very very disturbing. So you you really wonder if um uh, if if we could have gone to the if if the space race was going on today, uh, whether we'd have the same advantages that we had in, in John F. Kennedy's day. I don't think so, Joe. Uh, Joe Doyle of the yeah. Catholic Action League on our Do-Maker Hotline with us. Joe is a historian par uh, uh, excellence as well. Joe, a couple of things I'm making notes as you speak, and then I have my uh, my big question for you. Uh, when I was a little boy, when I was in school, as, as a result of the uh, the moon landing, one of the books that I was recommending reading when I was making my way through to, to the number one spot in the fourth grade reading club was PT-109. I'll, I'll never right. forget reading PT-109. It was written by what was he, uh, Lieutenant uh, Lieutenant Commander uh, Kennedy? Uh, right. He, he, was, he was. I think he was Lieutenant Junior Gray Kennedy. But uh, do, do you know how he ended up on PT one hundred nine? I do not. Why well, should? Because I read the book, but I don't remember. <laughs> he was a staff officer in Washington, and it seems that his girlfriend was a Danish actress who was uh, very possibly a Nazi spy. And what happened is J. Edgar Hoover was watching, his people were watching the Danish actress that was Kennedy's girlfriend. And instead of going to Roosevelt and ending uh, Kennedy's career, he went to his old friend, old Joe Kennedy, and told him about what was, his son was up to. And old Joe pulled strings and arranged for Kennedy to be quickly transferred out of, out of Washington to combat duty in the Pacific. <laughs> so that, that, that's, so that's, that's how he winds up on PT-109. <laughs> yeah. Now, the other thing is this. Nigel Hamilton, is the British author, who uh, I'm not sure I, I would endorse everything he's written, but he did a new biography of, of the Kennedys a few years ago. And uh, uh, Jimmy Craven, who I worked for, the state rep, knew uh, Joe Jr., Joseph Kennedy Jr., the one that was killed in World War II. And according to Nigel Hamilton's uh, uh, book on the Kennedys, um, uh, when... Jack Kennedy came back from his episode, his heroic episode of PT-109. Young Joe, his older brother, had a couple of questions for him. And the the questions consisted of this. 
when the destroyer cut your boat in half, where were you? Where was your lookout? And where was your radar operator? You know, <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the, not to be unkind. I mean, it was great. It was very heroic what he did, swimming. You know, trying to uh, to save his crew. He succeeded. But I mean, it, you know, a, for a PT boat to get run over by a, a destroyer is kind of like a rabbit getting trampled by an elephant. I mean, his, his, a PT boat is the most maneuverable thing on the water. It can go 45 knots. It could turn on a dime. How is it that a, a lumbering Japanese destroyer, whose engines you can hear from two miles away, was able to cut it in half? And, you know, my thought is, you know, was the music too loud? <laughs> okay, I want to stay on the subject of the Kennedys for just a moment. <laughs> oh, Joe, you're funny. All right, I want to talk about RFK Jr., Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., who uh, is campaigning for the Democrat Party nomination. He too is a patriot, and I've told, I've said uh, several times uh, publicly here that I believe that RFK Jr. is a patriot. Um, I think he was dead, uh, just completely and totally dead wrong uh, when he wanted to have us climb skeptics arrested and tried at the Hague. He seems to have backed off of that. Um, but RFK Jr. was running a very distinctly pro-American, very Trump-esque, MAGA-esque campaign, which means yeah, he can't yeah. be a Democrat and he can't win. Um, and yeah. I'm just wondering, I know that you follow, because you live there, so you followed uh, RFK Jr. I'm, I'm a, uh, probably for his uh, for his, uh, for his adult life. Um, uh, I don't know that he is, that, 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 that what he states publicly that he wants to to restore the Democrat Party. I don't believe that that's possible. These people are in bed with Satanists and Satanism and, and it's just evil. I don't think it's possible. Um, but I do think that it would be an unbeatable uh, 2024 ticket, Trump-Kennedy. And I just, uh, I don't know if uh, if, if the, uh, the Kennedys have to be eternally wed to the Democrat Party or is there room in there for RFK Jr. to wiggle? Well, let me just point out a couple of things. I mean, he is saying things that are, that are clearly the, the voice of a patriot, a patriot, and he is skeptical of the uh, of the whole uh, pharmaceutical industry of big pharma, and that's good. Uh, sadly, he's he still uh, holds an extreme left wing views on the right to life, on an abortion, which is, I think, kind of inconsistent with his other positions, which yeah. is uh, you know to, uh, to to protect innocent life from uh, uh, the uh, the deleterious effects of these untested vaccines. So he uh, he couldn't really be a a, 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 a a ticket companion for Trump or any Republican because of his extreme views in favor of abortion. Having said that, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy said something which really impressed me. And by the way, he, he, the polling indicates he could get maybe up to twenty percent, maybe uh, by some polls of the Democratic uh, Party. So there is some kind of you know rational rump of the Democratic Party left. Uh, but he said something which really impressed me, and I, I hadn't thought of this, and it was just was something that was really a, kind of very informative. Uh, I think many people, um, uh, Mike, understood Robert Kennedy Sr.'s uh, involvement in the 1968 uh, presidential campaign to be entirely expedient and opportunistic. Uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy had been against the Vietnam War, and he had been uh, Johnson's opponent, and uh, he caused Johnson to do so badly in the New Hampshire primary. And then once it looked as though Johnson was vulnerable, uh, Robert F. Kennedy stepped in, basically kind of big-footed McCarthy, shoved McCarthy aside, and became the uh, the anti-war candidate. And uh, people on both the right and the left thought, again, this was opportunistic and expedient and uh, and rather ruthless. But John Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. said something uh, something which I never thought of before. And I think it, it, it gives a very good explanation for Kennedy's '68 campaign. He said the reason my father ran for president in 1968 
was because he believed he believed that the only way to find out what happened to his brother was for him to become president and control the government. Huh. Imagine that. I had not Imagine. heard that. No. Uh, Imagine that. See, so obviously, you know, obviously uh, Robert Kennedy didn't believe in the Warren Commission. Well, I don't think it, uh, look, as someone that uh, was lifelong and a native of New Orleans, uh, when Oliver Stone came and made his, his JFK film, and, you know, and, and, and including in the book, he, um, uh, he, had, he had followed the actions of, uh, what was his name, Jim Garrison. Um, yeah. A lot of the story of, of how JFK was assassinated, and especially in Stone's film, Kind of pass passes through the city of New Orleans. Uh, there was stuff yeah. going on here, um, and no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think any person that that has read the Warren Commission. Well, hell, Trump declassified much of what the, the the internal documentation that they had from the Warren Commission. I read it. I'm sure you read it. No, I don't believe the Warren Commission and the report that Trump declassified tells me not to believe it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's an American presidential historian named Richard Norton Smith. He's on all the kind of C-SPAN programs all the time talking about American presidents. And he kind of let the cat out of the bag. He did a recent biography of President Gerald Ford, and he said that Ford, as a congressman in the 1950s, was put on a special House oversight committee for the CIA, where he developed a reputation as somebody who was very discreet and very trustworthy. In other words, he wouldn't say anything. And uh, he said, that's the reason. Like, he, he's killing him, actually, by saying this, but he, he thinks he's crazy. He said, that's the reason that uh, Gerald Ford, as the House Minority Leader, they, they're not quite minority either, yes, this is still a congressman, as a congressman, was put on the Warren Commission in 1963 because he was considered, quote-unquote, reliable. Mm. So what does that tell you about the Warren Commission? They wanted people who were discreet and, uh, and quote-unquote, reliable. So it was, uh, but uh, but obviously Robert Kennedy believed that it, that his father did not believe uh, did not have the, the knowledge of what really happened to uh, uh, President John Kennedy in the assassination, and he believed he, if he could control the federal government, uh, he might be able to gain that information. And as you know, he was assassinated before that could happen. So um, it was, um, yeah. Uh, and by the way, how, how many people, uh, uh, Mike, in, in in human history actually witnessed the assassination on live television? I'm not talking about President Kennedy now. I'm talking about the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, he, he's on live television. He's being brought out, and then and somebody goes up and shoots him. And uh, so, of course, what's the first rule of an assassination? Always assassinate the assassin. So uh, uh, this is, um, uh, you know, it's just uh, extraordinary uh, what happened here. And uh, you know whether we'll ever know the truth. I'm, I'm not sure. No, I I, I think we well, at judgment <laughs> after judgment we'll know the truth. Um, I'm just reminded uh, about Earl Warren, and uh, that is in uh, one of Eisenhower the the biographies on Ike. Uh, Eisenhower said, and I've committed this to memory about 20 years ago. Quote: It was the be- it was the worst damn fool mistake I ever made. Close quote. Yeah. Eisenhower yeah. on nominating. California Governor uh, Earl Warren to, to, to the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. They told yeah. Ike that Warren was solid and they lied to him. And Ike made the nomination and he were, for the rest of his life he regretted he regretted Earl Warren getting on the Supreme Court. But he put it yeah, there. I, I, I believe Eisenhower uh, did regret it, but at the same time 
isn't it funny that that Republicans always end up appointing these liberal justices and <laughs> and and supposedly regretting it, but that never seems to happen with with Democratic president, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, you know, it, it, it uh, you know Reagan's first appointee was a was a, a former state senator who supported abortion. Uh, you know, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, and uh, he was told reliably that no, she's a strict constructionist. She'll she'll never support Roe versus Wade. Guess what? She did. And of course, um, uh, you know, Anthony Kennedy was a, was, was a Reagan appointee, and um, we saw uh, uh, you know uh, 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 Stevens. Of course, John Paul Stevens was the, was the Ford appointee. The Nixon court was terrible. I mean, it was by the way the, the, the principal dissenter to Roe versus Wade. Was uh, was Byron White, who was, right. a, who was a, a Democrat appointed by John F. Kennedy. Uh, so it was. Uh, uh, we really have a case here where the, the, the Republican Party, uh, you know, about fifty percent of their of their uh, prior to Trump, prior to Donald Trump, about fifty percent of their Supreme Court nominees uh, proved to be complete frauds. And uh, <clears throat> yeah. just one final note on the Kennedys. Uh, Edward M. Kennedy is is uh, I forget. I, I think I want to say it was John. Uh, um, John Finnis, the, uh, the law professor at Notre Dame, who is uh, Amy Coney Barrett's, uh, she, he was her uh, chief uh, professor of law. Uh, somebody wrote it, I think it was Finnis, about how um, if it not for the antics of Edward M. Kennedy and, and the opposition of the most overqualified associate justice of the Supreme Court nominated in our adult lifetime, which is Robert Bork. If it's not for Kennedy's savaging, savaging, lying of uh, uh, about Bork, Bork gets on the court and Kennedy doesn't. And if Bork is on the court, Casey versus Planned Parenthood goes five to four against Planned Parenthood and for Robert Casey. So uh, and, and, and that that would have saved about thirty million. Bucks. Thirty million. Be, it might have been you that wrote that, Joe. Yeah, and and we should bear something else in mind. A very very important point about that. What you just said was absolutely accurate. But while Kennedy was the virtuoso performer in that uh, in that symphony. The guy that conducted the orchestra was Joe Biden. That's right. He was the, he was he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and he was the one that Bork would had had no chance of a fair hearing from Biden. He had he had freaked the whole process, and he had, in many ways he had not that Kennedy needed any encouragement, but he set Kennedy up to, to do what he did. So it's really Joe Biden and Ted Kennedy who are the two principal uh, 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 people responsible here for the deaths of tens of millions of unborn children that would have been saved had Casey gone the other way. And, and, and he's, a, he's a moral monster, by he, no, he is an absolute monster. And, and another note on that. And they tried the same script again against Clarence Thomas. But they failed, yeah. and Biden was responsible. You know, before David Brock lost his mind, he wrote a book called yeah. "The Real Anita Hill." Uh, there's yeah. over there's over 500 footnotes in "The Real Anita Hill." The book is aged very well. And if you want to know what really happened with the, uh, with the Clarence Thomas uh, Supreme Court nomination hearing and pubic hairs on coke cans and all that stuff, in Anita Hill, read "Anita Hill" or "The Real Anita Hill" by David Brock. And it wasn't just by it was Biden, and Biden was it was being driven by Paul Simon of Ohio and Howard Metzenbaum. And uh, we know, and we know 
how the whole thing came about. It was a it was at a it was at a cocktail party, and it was a conversation that was overheard. Anita Hill wasn't even involved in it, and Paul Simon's wife, Senator Paul Simon's wife, overheard the conversation and said, "There may be a way to get this Clarence Thomas guy." And then you just read the book. I mean, this is before the internet when and when uh, Brock is going to libraries and using LexisNexis and what have you to you know to discover uh, uh, what's going on here. But you're right. And Biden is behind both of them. They tried it again. They tried it again with Alito. They tried to yeah. do it again yeah. with a Kennedy tried it again with Alito. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and he failed. So he failed to get he failed to get Thomas and he failed to get Alito. Thank heavens, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, Biden again was the, the Judiciary Committee chairman. So all, all of these pieces ultimately were, were put together by him. Yep. Uh, again he's he's an evil man he, He's the man that he tries to destroy good people uh, because uh, uh, they, 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 won't, they won't consent to the, to the mass murder of unborn children. So what does that really tell you about the really the Luciferian character of, uh, of uh, Joseph Robinette Biden? Well, it tells me he is a Luciferian character. <laughs> and I don't have any questions about it. Joe, I want to thank you for your time, as always. I'll make the uh, the interview available as a, as a podcast for all of your supporters uh, oh, thank you. at uh, crusademax.com. Uh, he is Joe Doyle. Hey, uh, come out and meet Joe and, and watch Joe, uh, Joe speak at the St. Benedict Center Conference uh, October the 13th and 14th this year. Uh, if you go to Catholicism.org, Brother Andre Marie's site, uh, you can get your reservations there and uh, uh, Joe and I hope to see you uh, the, this October. Joe, we will talk again, I'm sure, uh, mo uh, much sooner than that. Keep up the great work. So. And uh, Th Thank you, Mike, and the, and the same to you. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm always very grateful to be on your show and delighted to have a chance to talk to you and to, and to your wonderful listeners. Well, we're, uh, we're uh, always uh, excited to have you as well. All right, Joe, God bless you. We'll talk soon. <clears throat> Thanks, Mike. You're Come welcome. Bye.